Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. I'm Mike Gazbeck, and I'm here as always, or at least most of the time, with my co-host, John McDonald. So today's going to be a really fun episode. We've had a couple guests on lately, and John, I don't know about you, but the most recent episode with Nick, I was so excited by that. You know, I'm I'm very much uh, nerded out by career development, and I felt like that was a topic that we never learn about in school that no one ever talks about because it's boring. And yet I just, I came away from it feeling so charged up and so much more knowledgeable. I don't think many people know about contracts until they have to deal with the contracts, uh, whether through work and they're just kind of forced into it with a mentor. I know more now than I did before. Absolutely. So today we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. John, you and I actually just presented a, a really fun CME lecture at the New York PA Association. We did a non-clinical careers for PAs. And it was really fun, very well received. Yeah. I think people were wondering what I was doing up there. They were a little confused by the pharmacist. It was a lot of fun networking. It was a lot of fun making new connections and maybe even meeting some new people that might come on the show in the future because a lot of people that have some very interesting career paths. But today we figured a good option for today's episode would be to talk about non-clinical careers. One of the core tenets of White Coats of the Round Table is career development, combating burnout, but then also discussing and highlighting non-traditional career paths. So we're going to basically take the presentation that we gave a couple weeks ago and maybe change some things to make it more specific or less specific to PA. But John, let's talk about just a brief overview of all the non-clinical jobs that are available. And then maybe in subsequent episodes, we'll bear down and have a more specific focus on specific non-clinical careers. We talked a lot about, like Mike mentioned, moving into an idea where we have a goal we can move towards uh, is really what people are probably asking asking for. So let's start off with some some non-clinical roles for PAs to begin with. So I'm going to go down through some of the executive lot, uh, level jobs, healthcare system leadership, CEOs, um, also insurance industry directors, pharmaceutical executives, venture capital. And venture capital is a, a really interesting one because when we talk about venture capital, most of the time we're all discussing how we even gain, how, how to get funds for an idea. But being on the venture capital side, there are businesses set up uh, to fund these type of um, high output business. Uh, so you could be, even be a part of one of those boards. Investment analyst, maybe you know something about a market. Uh, it is your subject matter and you're the expert. You would be a great asset for companies like third party businesses or software integrations that they don't know much about what the business of the healthcare industry looks like, but you do because you've been working in it. So you'd be a great pair. Medical consulting, legal consulting, being a part of board of directors, and that could be for anything. That could be for community-based health even. It doesn't have to be a practice-based position. Nonprofit leadership, a lot of that can even go on with board of directors for nonprofit uh, 50C3s, right? And then internal health administration, or sorry, international health administration and politics. So something interesting, we've, we've talked in the past, Mike, about relief type work, medical relief or medical missions. 
and that being International Health Administration, I, I kind of would pair that along with um, that role. What medical missions? Are there jobs in medical missions or International Health Administration? Like, tell us a little bit about that. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it is an interesting one, and I don't know if you're intentionally queuing this up, but we may be a little bit premature. We'll we'll have to have my uh, my wonderful spouse on at one point. Mm-hmm. So our previous guest, Jennifer Harrington, who came on to talk about nutrition, she's actually coordinating a medical missions trip with her um, her PA program down to Peru, mm-hmm. and my wife is jumping on that and is going to be going down next year. But aside from medical missions, we often think about that as a clinical role. And certainly there may be tons of opportunity for healthcare professions, um, you know, of any profession really to have a role internationally for global relief, for clinical response. But there's also a lot of opportunity on the organizational or operational side. Mm -hmm. You're going into a foreign country, you're maybe bringing 50 or 100 people into that, that place to run a clinic or to, you know, operate some sort of health system. That takes a ton of planning, that takes a ton of coordination. It takes a ton of financing. So there's a lot of opportunity within that for clinicians or healthcare professionals to have non-clinical roles in the planning, the operational, organizational side, because having that clinical background can be really important to know, all right, these are the conditions we're going to see. These are the drugs we're going to need. Here's how we can find funding. Mm -hmm. All of those things really benefit when you have that clinical background. Even more niche or specific. In Rochester, there's interval Interval is a medical administration company that provides materials, mostly medical, to countries in need. And I, when I was a, let's see, I think it was my first year at pharmacy school, we had service day every year. And this was one of the services that I chose to work with. And what we did is we just took medical uh, equipment or or packaging, tubes, needles, any really anything that wasn't opened, we would separate it out and uh, and get them ready for shipment out to different countries for medical environments who need it. So th- it's it's a supply chain, but it's still something where you as a medical professional will know, oh, maybe we don't need uh, 10,000 fleet enemas, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that would not be a good thing to send out. I don't out. know what kind of maybe medical mission you're doing. Oh, yeah, it's it's going to be places, highlands, things with lots of cheese, uh, missions to Sweden, <laughs> you know. We could get into very specifics. Maybe you want to go into some of the specifics, Mike. Yeah, let's, uh, let's maybe tackle administration. So what I'd like to do okay. is let's maybe just go through and kind of list off like we did for executive level jobs. I want to give listeners an opportunity to just get a breadth of how many different things there are out there. And then maybe afterwards, we'll just pick one or two to just highlight in greater detail. But let's talk about administration. So healthcare professionals, if you're interested in non-clinical roles, administration is one that we often think of. In PA and P world, maybe pharmacy is the same way. I think often we think administration is limited to, you know, supervising a clinical team, the APP director, the pharmacy manager, but there's so many more opportunities. You can be an educational dean. You could be um, a director of a department. You can do business consulting for the healthcare system. You could be in health insurance on the payer side. You can be an executive or an administrator on the payer side. You could be 
a corporate healthcare benefits advisor. You can do private insurer consulting or medical reviews. You could be a government healthcare director. There's many different opportunities within admin, I think, that are maybe non-traditional. So so that's just a summary of different admin roles, but there really is many others. Uh, You know, healthcare is such a huge part of the economy and healthcare systems, especially as our, our healthcare continues to consolidate into larger and larger health systems. There's a lot of opportunity for clinicians to kind of make the jump into the admin side. But John, maybe have you take a crack at it. Give me a list of some other areas where healthcare professionals can maybe find non-clinical career paths. All right, let's talk about technology then. Technology is in a weird spot right now, and I've heard everything from avoid getting into technology unless you've already been working in it. Or right now, there's a lot of VC available, some venture capital available. So this is a great time to get in. But now it's recession. Should we get in? It, there's a lot of a lot of things to talk about with technology. Uh, however, let's give you a couple pieces here. Healthcare technology, software development. So everybody who's worked in a healthcare uh, system knows how many times we've integrated new softwares, new programs, updates to old EHRs. Uh, introducing new EHRs, all the different changes that are made, even from uh, data transfers through to PBMs and insurers, uh, there's regulation across all this. So a healthcare professional can be integral to any company that has to go through a healthcare entity. We talked about implementation. So you can actually be on implementation uh, teams. There are pre-screening, there's integration teams, there's post-follow-up teams. Uh, if you go to LinkedIn and you look up technology, healthcare technology, you're going to see all the different types of teams that you can be on. Uh, you can evaluate companies for use for the software. Uh, you can help the administration of a certain healthcare system understand how this software integrates successfully in the past. I mean, there, there's just so many wide range. If you think healthcare and think technology, anything that's associated, the regulation usually requires a medical professional to be a part of it. And telemedicine. Telemedicine is booming right now. There's a lot of companies out there, uh, so much so that, that the FDA is having to get involved with places like Cerebral. Oh, boy, you know, yeah. They were sending letters out to shut them down. Uh, but because there's so much telemedicine out there, there there's a lot of support. Nick, when he came on talking about about contracting, he usually uh, is helping out those those people who are looking to get in telemedicine or starting their own practice. So that's a big boom. Um, and then medical equipment equipment development, you can be a part of R and D, marketing, communication, internal teams and structures. It's very similar to pharma in that way. There's lots of teams uh, that are siloed off for development needs. So every team really could use a medical professional. We talked about a lot of different other realms outside of the usual spaces. What have you experienced in the past of what you've worked with? Yeah, so one of the areas that I do a lot of non-clinical work is teaching. And I think, you know, teaching is a really great opportunity because almost everyone has some sort of alumni connection. There's at least some, you know, previous experience with education. And we may often, as healthcare professionals, think about teaching as just limited to, oh, I'm a PA, so I'll go teach at PA school. And certainly there's plenty of opportunities there. But I think if we broaden our horizon and think about it, 
you know, a PA or an NP can certainly go teach at maybe a community college for the um, for the EMT program or the paramedic program. Um, you know, maybe there's opportunities within nursing school. There's a lot of different opportunities out there. Just once again, because healthcare is such a massive part of our economy. Outside of just teaching at a college, there's potential for CME development, medical education, patient education. So there's a lot of different opportunities for teaching, and that's a really easy low bar of entry um, for someone that may be interested. So that's maybe an overview, kind of the 30,000-foot look at some of the options. But I want to slow down a little bit now because we've just been rapid-firing all these and maybe talk about just a handful of the more popular career paths. And let's start with medical affairs. So I don't know if everyone is familiar with what an MSL is. So John, let me kick it to you. And maybe start from square one with what is an MSL? How does that role function? Kind of walk us through it. So an MSL is a medical science liaison, part of a pharmaceutical industry. The manufacturers themselves put these teams together uh, as a part of medical affairs to help with communications, internal, external, and then internal to external, um, and the hodgepodge of all that. So an MSL is truly the person who's going out into the field educating everybody uh, on a specific drug or disease state that a company may focus on. So this individual will travel in a specific region. It could be multi-state. It could be a single state. It could be single region, depending on how packed that area is. But if we're talking about a specific disease state, uh, we'll just say talk about neurology, Um, specifically MS. You might be given an MS drug to go and educate what they call KOLs, key opinion leaders, or you might know them as SMEs, subject matter experts. And the goal is, is you're educating them on this new drug that's coming out. It usually might be in phase three, phase four trial, Uh, but you give them the data, they give you feedback, you bring it back to farm. Farm will take it, use it for education materials and maybe adjust some of their product information communication, marketing, education, anything to help meet the needs of the KOLs. So this is this job is really just an in-between uh, that allows you to educate if that's your passion. It allows you to meet new people if you're really personable and you can talk r- really easily and make people feel comfortable. Uh, and also drug information. If you really do enjoy understanding the details of a specific drug or disease state, maybe this is the job for you. It puts all those three together. But the great thing is once you get in, it can be difficult for some people to get into these roles. Once you get in, transfer uh, transferability to different departments within the pharmaceutical industry is a lot greater. Um, you can get into medical writing. When we've talked to medical writing in the past, you can get into research, clinical research sites. Uh, you can get an R&D. There's the list goes on, but MSL seems to be, people like it because it's engaging. Uh, you get to travel uh, and you get a lot of good food paid for. And I, the base salary is really not bad. Usually, I think the lowest, on the low end, the base salary is around 160 but that's without any other comps available. Most of them have comps given to you. Uh, but it, for roles in the MSL, some of the things that you would be doing specifically is attending conferences. Everybody attends conferences. 
those engagements with key opinion leaders, you will need to make some time to go out and meet new people. So if you would consider yourself an introvert and don't like talking to people or you get all clammy in your hands, don't don't go for this position because you're going to be meeting a lot of high-powered individuals in your disease state. Uh, you could be a part of some of the investigations. Uh, you can be a speaker for pharma. Uh, one of those companies, they might like how you talk and might send you out on a circuit. Uh, medical strategy, material review, depending on how large the company is, smaller companies, you're going to be involved in a lot more. Uh, bigger companies, thinking about the Avvies, Teva, uh, Merck, you probably will be siloed into your into your position with little communication outside. So it's just a lot, a large spectrum of things to do in the role and places to work for in the role. John, do you have data, or at least off the top of your head, of you know the degrees or what education typically breaks down for MSLs? Primarily the the highest degree, uh, or I should say the highest percentage of degrees is going to be the PharmD. Uh, then after that comes the PhD. Uh, there is a little bit more leaning, and maybe this is completely subjective or and anecdotal, but most of the folks I've listened to, they would prefer those in practice or those who, who have actually worked in, in the clinical setting before. So PharmDs seem to be kind of taking that area a little bit more than PhDs. Just to echo what you're saying, I think you generally have seen MSLs that either have the clinical background or are PhDs with bench science that help develop the molecule or have, you know, heavy research expertise within that disease state. But anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please go ahead. No, no, it's fine. And, and going down from there, you have the doctors, not many doctors in the in that field. Um, it's, it's mostly going to be pharmacists uh, and some APPs, uh, sprinkling some uh, PhDs there. But my industry is taking the cake with that one. Uh, and then the therapeutic areas that are are most desired, especially at this point, is oncology. Around 30%, a third of the positions that need support is the oncology field. Just go Google, LinkedIn. Uh, you might even see it on Craigslist Tech, you know? Uh, is that a thing? Craigslist Tech? <laughs> no, okay. No, I think Craigslist is gone. No, just don't do that. Don't do that. No, it's still is there. It? Oh. I tried. To, yeah, I tried to buy a Google Nest the other day off of it. Anyways, if you are in oncology and you want to get out, the world is your oyster. So uh, outside of that, though, neurology, we have rare disease, uh, hematology, immunology, it goes down from there. But you're going to, you notice by what I've already mentioned, those are the hot topics uh, as of today right now. Pretty much if you're making a drug, if the drug is making a lot of money or potentially could. But the first thing you need to do is just go to the Medical Science Liaison Society website. You can get a free membership. Uh, there's limited access when it's free, but once you get the paid membership, there's a lot of resources available for you. They pitch a class as well to get a certificate. Uh, I have not heard that it's beneficial. Most hiring managers that I've, I've spoken to in the past in the field, um, just through networking, they don't really look too highly on it. Uh, it's not something that sticks out if they have it. And I've also have experience in the candidate rather would have had experience in a specific field. Then, I mean, maybe it would do something they've mentioned, but really you just should be practicing. That's, that's really where you're going to get your chops from. So 
Then there is a medical science liaison institute, uh, very similar. Uh, any organization is going to have more resources available um, in one location. A couple books you can look at. There's the Medical Science Liaison Career Guide, uh, subtitle How to Break into Your First Role. And that's that's going to really tell you a lot of what we've been telling you is network, 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 network. Uh, a lot of this is just understanding the lingo and who you know. Uh, but then there's some verbiage that you can learn as well that just help you get into the understanding of how the role functions as you step into it and how you communicate with other teams. Uh, the Sunshine Act, if you haven't looked up the Sunshine Act, uh, I would recommend doing that. Uh, I'll give you one more book and we can move on from there. Uh, there's another book. Uh, All Medical Science Liaisons started with no MSL experience. And, and then the fundamentals of compelling medical science liaison resumes. And that's by Jane Chin. She's a PhD. Uh, so it's just some resources to get you started. I, I really think that the best resource that you can take on is just check out the MSL Society and reach out to one person that you might know that who functions in the role right now, and they will get you plugged in. MSL is probably one of the hottest non-clinical careers. So it's good to spend a lot of time on this because without fail, when we have conversations with people, whether it be listeners or even in our professional world, very often, you know, the questions come up of how can I break into industry? I've applied to dozens or even mm -hmm. hundreds of jobs and I still haven't made it in. And it can be very difficult. So John's alluded to it. We've had done a whole episode on it. Networking is really key. So many of these jobs, if they are publicly posted, they're going to get a lot of resumes. Um, very often, the people that get their first MSL job is when they have a connection and they have someone, a mentor that can shepherd them through the process, make sure that their CV or their resume gets on the desk of someone mm -hmm. that actually puts eyes on it. And that's not unique to MSL. I think that's just you know modern day job hunting where everything is done by computer algorithm and very often your resume is either filtered in or filtered out just based on keywords. So if you look at Best MSL, it's a, it's a group that helps uh, MSLs find uh, jobs or it, it helps some industries find MSLs. So the the one who started this, uh, he's a physician and something that I've heard him say directly is don't ever cold apply to a position ever. Mm -hmm. it's like that's, it's a waste of your time. Um, it's honestly a waste of their time. If you're going to make an, you know, inroads, it's through other people. So do not send anything cold, uh, hand it up through somebody else. So I guess save, save yourself some time. Uh, but to give some hope, I don't know if this is hope or if it's still scary, but I just talked to somebody who's an MSL who was a director of pharmacy in a very niche uh, disease state and one of very well known still put out hundreds of applications and took them a year mm -hmm. to get in. So it's not your abilities necessarily if you're going to be going into this or looking into it. It's it's just right place, right time, right person you're interviewing with. It's it's like dating. It, this is more like dating than anything else. So put yourself out there, wear your nicest shirt. So key key takeaways, network, network, network. And maybe don't get discouraged if you're looking for an MSL position and it takes you a while. If it goes, you know, many applications, many interviews, it's probably going to take you a lot of persistence and patience before you can find that first role. But once you get that first role, 
generally yeah. people are going to be much more accepting or willing to hire someone with industry experience. So the first role is going to be the hardest, but then usually you'll be able to make lateral moves or even moves up internally much more easy. So let's shift a little bit because I want to make sure that this episode is an overview of some of the more popular non-clinical options. So I'll tackle medical writing. And I really like this because right. one of my 2022 goals, I've talked to you about this off air, but one of my goals is to try and diversify some of my consulting. I do a lot of um, promotional speaking for the pharmaceutical industry, but I've been trying to do a little bit more medical writing. And the reason for that is it's all asynchronous. So it allows me to work on my own clock. I can you know, work on it at eight o'clock at night on my laptop in my bed while watching Netflix, or when I'm traveling, I can also do things. So medical writing is a really nice opportunity for people that are maybe looking to either supplement their clinical work or completely leave clinical practice. And one of the big reasons for it is the flexibility or the ability to work remotely and completely asynchronous. So there's a lot of different types of medical writing. We may not necessarily recognize how many different roles there are within that jobs or field. It can include journal articles or manuscripts. For scientific publication, it could be continuing medical education materials, regulatory documents for government agencies or FDA approval, patient education brochures, news articles, website content or books, healthcare policy documents, grant proposals for research, sales training or marketing materials for healthcare products. And understandably, when you hear that list, there's a lot of different target audiences there. If you're writing scientific papers, that's going to have a very different target audience, a very mm -hmm. different style of writing and skill set versus writing patient education materials, where I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the recommendation is, is that when you're writing material for patients, you should target writing at an eighth grade level of comprehension and understanding because you want to make sure you're as inclusive as possible. So that's going to be a very different skill set because it may sound easy to write at a easily digestible, easily understood level, but it's actually quite hard. You have to make sure that you're thinking through, is this word going to be understood by everybody? All those types of things. So there's a lot of opportunities for medical writing. And maybe we can get into comp because that's always the big question, right? If someone's leaving clinical practice very often in healthcare, I think part of the problem is so many healthcare professions, we have golden handcuffs. We spent years and years and years going to school We've incurred mm -hmm. potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. So we need to make sure that we're in a position where we can still continue to earn a high income to pay off that debt, or at least justify the amount of time and training we've spent to become clinicians. Did I, was I the one that said that way too much to you, golden handcuffs? I feel like I'm the only one that says that. You probably have, because pharmacy, I think, is a really, well, pharmacy is a great example of it, especially retail pharmacy, where the pay is so much higher than clinical work. And then I, I think a lot of times people may not necessarily mm -hmm. feel fulfilled in retail pharmacy, but they feel trapped because the pay is much better than what they can do in a clinic. You get to a level of living that you can't get back down from unless you take everything away. So that's what the problem is here is you inch by inch get up there, but overnight for pharmacists, you go from making what under 30 grand a year as a student to somewhere is over a hundred thousand dollars, 120, depending on where you go, maybe even higher starting. And you have no clue how to handle your money. But once you get to that lifestyle, it's really hard to back down. So using these types of businesses, like your like medical writing, you can go into it full time, like you're probably going to talk about, but what about part time? Yeah. So, so we have the 
American Medical Writers Association, which once again, as you said earlier, these these associations are always going to be great resources. They're going to have a lot of different things available, um, a lot mm-hmm. of different opportunities to learn more, but also potentially network, find conferences, meetings in your area. So in their 2019 compensation survey, they break down compensation for freelance medical writers and full-time employed medical writers. So I'll break it down that way as well. So before we get into comp, the general breakdown of education is 46% of full-time employed medical communicators had a PhD or another terminal degree. 32% had their master's, 21% had their bachelor's. In terms of comp for full-time employed, so W-2 employees for medical writing, it was an average salary of 107000 So not breaking the bank, but at the same time, as we're talking about PA, NP, RN, PharmD to some degree, it's a salary that probably can be at least competitive enough to consider this as an alternative to clinical work. If we move over to the freelance side of things, Mm. once again, breaking down the levels of education, on the freelance side, 38% of freelance medical writers had an advanced degree, either a PhD or another terminal degree. 37% had master's degrees, while 23% had bachelor's degrees. In terms of compensation, the average salary of a freelance medical writer was 151000 Now, keep in mind that when we're talking about freelance, that means 1099 contracting. If you're unfamiliar with contracting, go back and listen mm-hmm. to that episode that we did a couple months ago. We overview what a medical contractor is. So this means that they're paying their own taxes, they're paying their own benefits, but salary is a little bit higher or pay is a little bit higher, I should say. The cool thing with medical writing, as you just alluded to, though, I think is that you don't have to jump in and quit your day job right away and just hope that you're good at it. Very often, there's opportunities to do gig work where you can pick up a job here, pick up a job there, and do it during your clinical time or in Mm -hmm. addition to your clinical time. And this offers you an opportunity to see if you're good at it, see if it's something you enjoy, but then also build your CV and your experience so that you can become more of an expert become more competent, demand a higher pay or higher compensation as a medical writer. I think this is really the opposite conversation from medical science liaison. We talked about how tough it is to get into that field and how often you may have to put in hundreds of applications, have many interviews before you even get an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Medical writing, at least in my experience and from our research, I think companies are far more willing to take a chance on someone that's unproven because if they throw one assignment at you, and it stinks, well, you probably won't get work from them again, but it's a very low risk for them. And they're always looking to expand their talent pool. There's always a need to have good, competent medical writers. So if you are wanting to get into this field and you start proactively reaching out to some of the big agencies or or opportunities that are listed on LinkedIn, that are listed online, you likely will find someone that will give at least some level of gig work for you to test out and see how, how you do. So in terms of resources, we can give some resources out there. The, the One of the best ones, in my opinion, is Coursera. So Coursera is a, an online yeah. um, educational platform that I, I really like. A lot of the courses on there are completely free. Some of them have a very nominal fee. But the course that I think is really good if you want to be an aspiring medical writer is called Writing in the Sciences. And this course teaches scientists how to become more effective writers. The topics within this course include good writing, tricks for writing writing faster with less anxiety, 
formatting of a scientific manuscript, peer review, grant writing, ethical issues in scientific publication, and writing for general audiences. So all really good topics. If you go through that course, you graduate through it, you're probably going to have enough baseline knowledge and competency to then go seek out some entry-level medical writing gigs and test it out and see if you like it. Some other resources out there on LinkedIn, there's actually a really helpful group called Medical Writing for Beginners. And this is a very helpful, supportive LinkedIn group with a lot of great information. And then there's also a website called firstmedcomjobs.com. And this has a lot of great information for people that want to get into medical writing, opportunities that are there. And lastly, because we're a podcast, we got to co-promote some podcasts. The Healthcare Comms podcast is also very good, has a lot of really helpful information. It's really more, um, I think, more inside baseball. It's for people that are maybe already in the field. But if you're aspiring to become a medical writer, it's always good to check that out. Always look for information that is maybe aspirational to where you want to be. So John, we've talked about several different places where we can find non-clinical jobs. Maybe highlight one more area of non-clinical work for healthcare professionals, and then we can wrap this one up. Government, you can be involved in many different agencies, right? I think about pharmacy specifically. There is the BNE, there is the DEA, there's the FDA. Um, anybody who has to audit, really, you can be a medical professional. But policy and procedures or policy uh, regulation writing, there are many organizations, which we already talked about, who will be, who will send details to state and federal legislators. And a lot of the, a lot of the time, those people are either MPHs or they are part of the clinical teams, clinical teams in past, depending on what body that you're working with. A lot of the times you're going to see that those making impacts are those who have been in the field themselves. So these organizations like to send out uh, the clinicians as educators. So maybe you have an interest or have been part of uh, some sort of government position in the past, but we all know that government positions have great pensions, uh, your great, great insurance as well. So you could be part of the health uh, care systems compliance. Um, again, compliance. A lot of this is going to be compliance and regulation. So if you find that to be a dry topic, move along. There's private consulting to government regulators as well, just like with the being a legal expert or subject matter expert, you can be called on to consult uh, for your specific disease state um, or field of expertise. Specialty certification oversight. Uh, all of us know who have been in some sort of a, under some sort of organized environment where you you have those audits and those check-ins. Well, there's somebody behind that all the time. Uh, so if there are issues with an organization, a clinic, an individual, a lot of these organizations will come and do audits on that specific clinic, organization, individual. And it would behoove those organizations to use somebody who is like you, a clinician who understands the field, understands what is good clinical practice and can identify that very easily. Um, and then lastly, specialty guideline development. Now, a lot of the times this is going to be somebody who is in academia or who is an SME KOL, key opinion leader or subject matter expert in their field. Uh, but there are supporting positions underneath them as well. 
Mike, I mean, I, we could go on and on and on about all the different spaces in government that you can be a part of. So I think what we should do for the bonus episode for our Patreon members is talk about, in our opinion, what we feel like a good path towards a non-clinical career is. Because I think there's a lot of things that are specific. You know, if you want to be a medical writer, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. If you want to be an MSL, you're going to do that. But more mm-hmm. broadly, as we talked about networking, things like that, I think there's things that if you are looking to leave clinical medicine, there's some key points that are going to be applicable regardless. And I'd like to maybe dive into that a little bit deeper on the bonus content. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Let's do it. Before we do that, let's do our light items because always we want to talk about anything that's going on personally. Healthcare can be consuming, so we don't want to lose our own humanity. John, what's going on in your life? Mm, raking, a lot of raking. Oh, yes. But I did learn that I can I can use my lawnmower, which is a rider. You're, you're, you're such a suburban dad. Every episode, you're talking about yard work. I, I always hated doing that as a kid. But now that I realize it gets you out of the house and I learned how to use that mower to actually blow the leaves in a direction instead of raking. Um, I'm using a heck of a lot more gas, so I'm I'm contributing to the problem. It's been, it's like 70 here today, Mike. So I'm spending time outside hiking, taking the boys to the cabin. I'm spending as much time outside as I can. As soon as that winter hits, we're going to have to wake up and make sure our car isn't frozen before turning it on. The joys of upstate New York. Yeah. What about you? Uh, anything new for you? You've inspired me. Yeah. It's, it's funny now because the past couple episodes, I come in not knowing what my light item is going to be. And then I just copy yours. So I'm also going to talk about raking leaves because my yard is, we live on a couple acres and we've got tons of trees. So leaves are always a battle in the fall. Mm -hmm. But this year was fun because my eight-year-old is getting to the age now where he's responsible enough and coordinated enough that he can drive the riding lawnmower. Mm. So we have a tow behind, you know, I don't know what it's called, but it picks up the leaves. It's got like a brush that pulls Uh, them into uh, the thing. Lawn sweeper. Yes. So we've got a lawn sweeper. So we can attach that to the riding lawnmower. And my eight-year-old mm-hmm. this year is able to ride the lawnmower and then use the, the sweeper. So it was a thing mm. of beauty. My eight-year-old was doing loops around the lawn, picking up leaves. My six-year-old was in the back of the yard, dumping the leaf sweeper and then raking them into a pile. And I sat outside and supervised. So it was fun because obviously... Free child labor is always great, mm-hmm. but it's also really cool to see them getting older and they were super into it and they were super proud because they were accomplishing something. And this was something that they've seen me do in previous years and now they're actually getting to do it. So I think it, it felt like a, a very adult thing for them. So it's just been fun. I know I talk about my kids growing up a lot and it's, it is very sentimental watching them, you know, kind of grow up and get more responsibility as a result too, even with raking leaves. Did you have them fill out a 1099 and liability form? I did not. You, you know what, though? That's a whole separate conversation because you can employ your kids. Yes, you can. In your in your small business, and there's mm-hmm. huge tax advantages. So I probably should at some point. Yeah, we, we will. We're going to do some more finance in the future anyways. We're going to have to have Frank on and talk about uh, spouses and kids and how to invest mm-hmm. more through your business. So that's going to be coming up. Um, and I'm hoping in the future too, there's a, there's a few exciting things coming, uh, coming our way, friends of the podcast that we are, Mike and I are very excited uh, to have on. All right. Thank you, everybody. This is White Coats of the Round Table. I'm Mike Asbeck. This is John McDonald. 
If you haven't liked us, followed us, or reviewed us, please do so. This is the way that other people can discover this podcast. If you don't like the podcast, don't review us. As John said, we're going to jump over to the member side. If you're not a Patreon member, you can join us for as little as $5 a month. Every episode, we have a bonus content where we talk about deeper dives and give actionable items for our listeners. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is White Coats of the Round Table. I'm Mike Gazback. This is John McDonald. And we will talk to you next week. Love you. Bye.